The pension reform was like putting a man on Mars, okay? Balancing the budget structurally is like driving to New York. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Of course, we are sponsored by Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk, chicken farmer, uh, as I understand it, soon to be uh, lamb farmer as well, Liz Farmer. Welcome back. <laughs> lamb farmer, I wish. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Justin. And uh, this w- last weekend was Mother's Day, so um, it was it was lovely. Mother Nature was on was on our side this year. We had lovely weather up here in Maryland, and I spent the day in the garden and playing some baseball with my husband and son, and and basically not being bothered to do anything else I didn't want to do. <laughs> 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 Sounds like an, an ideal Mother's Day. Happy Mother's it Day. It was. <laughs> Terrific. Well, we are uh, today continuing our conversations with CFOs and controllers, uh, elected and otherwise. And today we're going to go the local government route and speak with Chris Brown, who's the controller of the city of Houston, toward the end of a second four-year term in that role. And He's been involved in a variety of really interesting endeavors there, pension reform, trying to put the city in a a more structurally budget balanced situation among many, many others. And uh, we're happy to to talk to him about everything that he's been up to and everything that is in the works. Houston is an interesting place for a couple different reasons. Of course, one being that it's a, a growing city and like so many growing cities, it has the challenges that come with that growth. It has a lot of opportunities that come with that growth, but we often overlook the challenges of that growth. It's often said, of course, that the, and we've said this, I think, a couple times on this podcast now, that some of the most acrimonious budget politics are not necessarily around budget cutting, but about what to do with budget surpluses and how to grow and where to make investments. And that has certainly been the case in a place like Houston. Houston also is like so many other large cities today and that it is a blue city in a very red state. And that creates an interesting intergovernmental dynamic that, again, has some challenges and some opportunities. And elected officials and particularly public money folks who can navigate that well can kind of take advantage of those opportunities and, and sidestep some of those challenges. But it is a, uh, again, not unlike so many of our big cities and, and not unlike so many of the people managing public money in our big cities. Uh, Liz, you certainly have talked a lot in your work about that dynamic of growing places, particularly blue cities in red states. When you think about the public money challenges in that setting, what comes to mind? Yeah, it's it's really difficult to to be heard at the state level, you know, with with enough um, force when you are a blue city in a red state. And if you're trying to get something really, really big done. And I think until Houston had Mayor Turner, that had been their recent experience was um, just kind of feeling frustrated with not not having enough of a voice in the legislature. And this is true of so many cities, whether you're blue or red city, you know, in whatever state. But I think it it is very much a pattern, certainly, if you're um, a, a blue city in a red state. But Turner, who had years and years and years of experience in the legislature and had those relationships and had built 
had built that trust. I did a profile on him, oh gosh, however many years ago now uh, for Governing Magazine. And I remember when I spoke with him, that was a big thing that he had said and a big thing that others had said was just he had he had spent the years building that trust. And that that was a huge, huge currency when it came to being mayor of Houston and now needing to go to the legislature and ask them to approve something that was going to make a huge financial difference, but that was also controversial and not popular with firefighters and and all of those other things. And so it's, it, you know, it certainly trust and finances. I've written about that a lot. They, they always tie together. And this is certainly one of those one of those examples. And, and for Houston, also being a rapidly growing city, uh, it it makes their their revenue situation all the more kind of um, I don't want to say precarious, but just very. It's a delicate balancing act. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've yeah you've written oftentimes in your work on fiscal stress and and what happens when you're on the brink of bankruptcy that 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 relationship between trust and finance and so much that trust is the lifeblood of finance uh, tends to break down. And that's when things can get really tricky. And what's interesting, I think, about the Houston case and, and similar sorts of cases is that you have it kind of going in the other direction, right? The trust preceding changes in the way that the money is used, especially when you're talking about the state allowing for maybe more local autonomy than they might normally allow for or allowing for you know, the creating of, of new and innovative fiscal tools and, and structures that they might not allow for any other city or for, for most cities. And so it really does come down to those those personal relationships and those credible commitments and trust is essential to that. So it really is a fascinating study and, and kind of how it works in both directions. Finance can help yeah. engender trust, but you also need it to be able to get to good financial practices in the first place. So true. Well, before we uh, get to the discussion with Chris Brown, I did want to make a, a brief note for many of our listeners. Uh, we learned this morning that Professor Tom Loth from the University of Georgia, the longtime dean and a uh, bona fide giant in the world of public money, passed away. I know many of our listeners have connections to Professor Loth, either uh, as MPA students or doctoral students uh, or whatever it might be, certainly a trusted advisor to governors and budget directors in Georgia and all over the state uh, and a real titan in our field and, and a very influential person that shaped the thinking of a lot of us who are in the world of state and local government finance. So we want to uh, extend our condolences to Professor Loth and his family and friends and Wanted to make note of that because it's an important person in the, the space that we explore in this podcast. It certainly is. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod controller for the great city of Houston, Texas, Chris Brown. Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk to us on the Public Money Pod today. Thanks for having me. Chris, it's good to good to connect with you again. Uh, we first met, uh, gosh, years ago, uh, 2015 or 16, somewhere around there. And and it's uh, and you know we've been in touch off and on ever since. But I think the what we first spoke about all, all the way back then was uh, Houston was doing this major pension reform, and I, I was impressed with the the way in which it was done at the time and and remain so um even even with the use of the controversial pension obligation bonds so i would love for you to tell our audience a bit about that and um and 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 also 
how it's fared, how the form in the Houston pension has fared since then. So we had at the time I got elected in uh, 2015, took office January of 2016, we had uh, roughly a, a $6 billion unfunded pension liability. And to put that into perspective, um, you know, our budget at the time was around $5 billion for our total budget. You know, and unfortunately, it, it continued to get worse before it got better. You can't fix these things overnight. Um, and, and how do how do we get from you know underfunding for years? We had uh, not made our full uh, annual contributions to our municipal and our police pensions. We we coincidentally did to fire, um, but even with that in totality, these these funds were you know six plus billion dollars underfunded. So you know the first thing uh, that we started looking at was uh, this theme of if we want to get to a point where we're structurally sound it's not going to be just the city doing this. It's not going to be just the employee groups. Really, it's got to be this term we dubbed shared sacrifice, where mm -hmm. we look at all of the different stakeholders and we say, you know, everyone, unfortunately, is going to have to give a little. I had to put a framework, which was basically what I dubbed the 222 framework. And uh, it's basically everyone gave 2%. And, you know, that's an important number, uh, the 222, because the majority contribution from employees in the form of reductions was just reductions to the COLA. We didn't touch any earned benefit, which I think is an important distinction here, because once you start talking about, you know, attacking earned benefits, um, not only does it get highly politicized, but it tends to get caught up in, in the court. You know, long story short, uh, we basically adjusted our COLAs. We, um, increase the contribution rates that the uh, employees pay. Uh, again, this is roughly, let's say, 2% reduction in COLAs, 2% increase in contribution rates. So from you know 5 to 7% in Muni, I think uh, fire actually was, uh, they had higher normal costs. So um, you know, went from 6 to 8%. You know, one of the things I wasn't, I wasn't happy about, and you referenced earlier, Liz, was pension obligation bonds, because I said, you know, you have to be very careful about how you utilize these. Um, you know, I had seen, unfortunately, in other cities where they're uh, issuing pension obligation bonds to pay their uh, their ADEC, their actuarially determined employer contributions. Um, you know, so that's like paying your mortgage with a credit card. Yeah. Um, you know, what what I ultimately you know said we could do uh, was we can use that to essentially shore up uh, from a you know funding perspective. Um, putting that money directly into the systems uh, as we, you know, had deferred in police and muni for so many years, we were um, about a billion dollars in deferred uh, payments roughly uh, over the last decade. So we, we put, um, you know, a large portion of that uh, into police, 750 million, and uh, I think about 250 million into the muni plan. Uh, to shore those up. And, and by doing that, you know, the police officers were a lot more willing to say, hey, look, we're going to give up, you know, you know, 2% of our COLA. Um, you know, there was also a reduction in survivability of the spouse from 100 to 80%. Um, but by doing these things uh, in, you know, uh, in totality and, and through this shared sacrifice, uh, we were able to kind of bend that, um, you know, that cost curve back down, uh, the pension obligation bonds helped to increase the funding ratios in uh, the police and muni plans. Um, fire had a higher percentage of funding ratio, but also had the highest normal costs because a lot of their benefits and retirement sometimes exceeded uh, their standard salary. So we closed things like um, 
pension spiking, uh, allowing people to use uh, accumulated sick and vacation time uh, as their final calculation payment. And also uh, for most participants, uh, unless you were grandfathered past a certain period, uh, the Deferred Retirement Option Program, which essentially allows you to retire and then um, take your retirement payment and put that into an annuity fund. You know, in total, um, you know, all these things collectively, let's go back. So in 2016, when I took office, $6 billion by uh, the end of 2017, when the reforms took place, we had to pass that through the state legislature. Uh, we had about an $8 billion unfunded pension liability. And then uh, last year, that had uh, come down to about $1.49 billion. Uh, we've since seen the market not perform as well. So I think the most recent actuarial report, we're at about $2.2 billion. But um, it's also worth noting that we uh, we did implement a cost corridor, which is kind of a, a novel concept. Oh, right. And essentially what that's, yeah, that was a complicated one, but it, it essentially puts us in a position where if uh, the market rate of return is low for a period of time and it's a, a smooth average, but let's say for three years, if we had you know, double digit uh, downturn, and uh, again, those investment returns reduce the value of uh, assets in the fund and uh, instead of putting all that pressure back on the city to say, okay, well, the city now has got an unfunded liability because the market didn't perform, it actually through the cost corridor, and uh, the corridor is basically a 10% corridor, so it's up or down uh, 5%. Uh, so if we have uh, in excess of a, a five-year average uh, 5%, we would have to go back to uh, essentially the bargaining table. And this is written into state law yeah. where we would say to the group, say, okay, look, we're going to have to contribute more. We're going to have to you know, lower the COLA. We're going to have to lower the survivability, pull some more of those levers to get uh, the plans back into uh, compliance. Getting into COLAs, the, the cost of living adjustments um, and, and those sorts of, um, maybe not those, I don't want to call them ancillary benefits, but um, they're they're like the trimming around the edges kind of thing. Um, it's something a lot of places have done. Anyone listening here uh, who is in Illinois, you're not allowed to do that. Everyone else, though, perhaps can uh, can take some take some lessons from from the scenario that you've described. And it, I mean, it sounds like it's it's working, and it must be difficult. I, I know that one of the more more difficult things, though, is to keep that um, fiscal responsibility mindset in play after after you all are gone. Yeah, luckily it's codified in state law. So if you know they wanted to change, you know, you're going to have to have the state legislature do it with you know lots of votes. You know, so it's not as easy as being able to change around the horseshoe at council where there's you know 17 people that. You just need a majority. So, um, yeah, we'll see, though. I mean, it's uh, the, the challenge is that maybe the market performs exceedingly well over the next decade. And we start to see, which we've seen now, fire, which was, you know, they kind of were the least supportive of this mm -hmm. in the end. They have the highest, highest funding ratio, um, but they also have the highest normal cost so that, you know, maybe their fund is continuing to be, you know, 100% funded in the future, it just kind of depends. But yeah, if some of these funds get overfunded, and they go back and say, well, let's readjust this. And then you have a period of, you know, five years of bad market returns. I mean, you know, it, it fundamentally is, uh, it's just a challenge with defined benefit programs, because the risk is on the entity. 
Um, And I think, you know, the, the, the smart money, as we used to say in the investment banking world is moving to defined contribution. But the thing I always argued was you can't just abandon the legacy system, because if you do that, you're going to leave it to implode. Chris, for anyone who's maybe less familiar with the Houston story, how, if at all, were OPEB, other post-employment benefits, mm-hmm. uh, a part of the the landscape that you had to contend with? You know, it's important to stay focused when you're tackling these large-scale uh, challenges. And I knew that OPEB was the next piece that we had to address, but I didn't talk about it at all during the pension reform. Because I said, we got to stay eye on the prize. We got to get the pensions done. That's the big brother. That's the one that needs to be fixed first. Because if we don't fix that, everything else is going to get cut. Interesting differentiation, the pensions, uh, you know, basically governed by state law. So any changes to the pension, we have to go through the legislature. OPEB benefits, it's all local control. We can make the changes at the council table. And so one of the things that I thought, and thinking steps ahead. I said, look, if we don't fix the pensions, they're just going to vote one day to eliminate the OPEB because they're going to say, we can't afford these pensions. We've got to cut the return. And they can, uh, you know, the the legislative authority lies at the table. So mayor could just say, we're just going to have to not fund a portion of the retire, you know, because the city funds a large portion of the retiree healthcare. They're just going to say, well, we're going to cut that benefit off because we've got to, you know, we have crowd out from our pension costs. Hopefully, we don't have to do that because we have addressed the pension liability. Um, but with OPEB, uh, the administration has made some slight changes um, that are slowing that cost curve. I think if you looked out 30 years, uh, that OPEB unfunded liability was expected to be about $9 billion in 30 years. One of the things that I've advocated for is setting up an OPEB trust from the standpoint from the employees, the OPEB trust is, I think, fantastic because instead of right now we're doing a pay-go, pay-as-you-go, and we're underfunding, uh, if we set up the OPEB trust, we can put money into a fund and the investment returns can help fund that. You know, And looking at these, a lot of people have set up the OPEB trust because when you have an uh, investment fund, you can use an investment rate of return instead of the current yield uh, amount uh, that bonds, you know, say that you know, 10-year treasury is yielding, although it's gone up, but historically has been much lower. Now that's one benefit, and that's really just on paper. The real benefit is that I think securitizes that benefit because it becomes much like the pensions. It's an earned benefit that has a a fund and dollars uh, in there that are assigned to fund those benefits in the future. So it's much less likely in the future that council would, with an OPEB trust in place, the council Mm -hmm. would just say, you know what, we're just going to get rid of those benefits. Um, the problem has been funding it. Everyone has always said no money, but um, with COVID, we saw there has been a lot of federal dollars. You know, you're not allowed to use that for you know pension liabilities or things of this nature. Right. But um, because we've had some of that COVID money and it's fungible, uh, that we've been able to use that to defer you know, revenue reduction. And we've had a pretty large increase in sales tax and other things that have come in. I mean, right now, uh, probably in my eight years, we're at the highest point uh, from a fund balance. So uh, a lot of that is just new tax revenue and fees. So we can use some of that additional money that we have right now and uh, seed that funding for the OPEP trust. And again, puts us on a path potentially that we could utilize uh, this vehicle to help 
eliminate that someday. Chris, you mentioned earlier um, about the the federal relief funding from the American Rescue Plan mm-hmm. um, and and how you're you're able to use that now. What is the city looking at in terms of the the fiscal cliff, right, with federal funding that that we hear about a lot? The funding expires at the end of 2026. And which sounds like a long time away, but isn't really in the in the budget cycle of governments. So what's what are you looking at in terms of the, the local economy and and when that fiscal cliff comes, how is Houston gonna be okay? Yeah, this is, you know, as uh, this is the pivot point in the podcast. This is where it goes from all roses to start, <laughs> you know, the clouds are starting to come in and you know it's gonna rain. You know, again, all of this um money that's come into the system through the federal government has really lifted up our fund balance and you know things look pretty good under the surface unfortunately is this structural budget imbalance that we've been dealing with as long as we've been dealing with the pension problem the city uh, has had a a bad practice of using one-time financing sources to balance our budget do you have an example yeah we had a uh, budget deficit uh, in, I want to say, 2007. And uh, the mayor at the time sold uh, our uh, stadium that we had, which was the Compact Center, the Summit, huh. uh, to Lakewood Church, which is Joel Osteen. Many of you may know Joel Osteen. Um, but that asset initially was leased by Lakewood Church from the city, and the city got into a financial, you know, just because of a downturn in tax revenue. And uh, we said, well, look, we need money. So we're just going to go ahead and sell that asset to Lakewood Church. At the time, uh, you know, the total value was around 50 or 60 million that we sold it. And we used that money to balance that year's budget. But had we still had the compact center, which is in Greenway Plaza, sitting on, I believe, four acres, um, that asset today would probably be worth a quarter of a billion dollars. You know, so at the time, when you go back and look at 07, when we sold that compact center, the budget gap was 60 million. So it seems to every administration kind of increase slowly. And as a rule of thumb over the last four mayors, it seems to have doubled. What I like to say, the curse of the law of large numbers, when you have a $60 million budget deficit on a $4 billion budget, and then you allow that to double to 120, and then you know, eventually to 250, which is, I think, probably where we're at now around the $250 million range, we have a a potential challenge because the way that we have been able to, for the last three years, balance that budget is in part because of all the federal money, either directly with ARPA and revenue replacement or indirectly because sales tax has gone up 15 and 10 and 8%. And that, I believe, in part is because the federal government has pumped trillions of dollars into the economy through PPP and other programs. Uh, So people are out there spending. And look, this is a thing. It's 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 it was a blessing because if we had had a nine or 10 percent downturn in in our revenue in the general fund uh, in 2020 and not received the federal money, uh, we would have had to make pretty substantial cuts, um, and most of those would have been in salary reductions, uh, or in headcount, I should say, reductions, uh, cuts in our overall uh, salary expense. And 
you know, we are going to have to deal with that in the future because there's probably $200 million of money in the system that I believe is going to not be there, evaporate, uh, Liz, as you dubbed it, the fiscal cliff uh, in probably fiscal year 26. So, you know, I've sounded the alarm to say, look, this fiscal cliff is coming. And when it does, if we wait for this, you know, again, back to the storm metaphor, if we wait for this storm, which is going to be like a hurricane, if we wait for this till it's at our front door and we have to cut 10% out of the budget, that is not going to be a pleasant experience. And, you know, one of the big things that I think is, is further complicates it is, you know, if you look at our budget, a majority of it is spent on public safety. Of that $2.7 billion of general fund, our operational budget, uh, and that's, you know, 22 departments, um, police and fire encompass about $1.5 billion of that. So, you know, it's been historically uh, taboo to lay off any police and fire so that if we say, well, let's not touch police and fire. So let's just deal with the other, uh, you know, the remainder of the fund is 1.2 billion. Well, if we've got to cut 250 million out of that 1.2 billion, you know, we're talking, we're not talking about 10%, we're talking about 20%, right? Um, So it's, it's a lot more of a challenge, I think, than people are understanding. It's a, I think, a somewhat of a failing of, of government and that everyone's looking at only getting through this year's budget and, you know, we'll deal with next year, next year. Um, but these type of problems, whether it's pension, OPEB, structural budget challenges that have been persistent for, you know, decades, you can't just fix it in one year. So, you know, my my thing is uh, we need to implement this three three three. We need to basically cut three percent for the next three years out of the revenue. And the good news is now that the revenues are so high, it doesn't probably even mean that we need to actually reduce expenditures. We just need to slow that increase. Yeah. One quick follow up on that, Chris. You know, I, I can imagine that. And so much of what you're talking about here is kind of managing expectations. That's difficult to do in a city that's known really nothing but growth for certainly the recent past. How much of this is kind of recalibrating expectations or you know, having to think about a world without the kind of growth that, that Houston has had? And is that difficult for people to envision just because it's all many people have known for maybe 20 or 30 years? Yeah, I think, you know, Houston is the the boom, 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 bust town. You know, we have this, uh, you know, it, there is a lot of growth. Everyone is moving from California, from New York, you know, the housing market here, very hot. Uh, we're, I think, on our way to being, being the third largest city uh, in the country, soon to surpass Chicago in the next decade uh, from a population standpoint. But we're also on a geographical standpoint one of the largest cities from a landmass uh, were 650 square miles, which is enormous. And the service delivery, uh, when you talk about having to put in additional, you know, lane miles of streets and pipes for water, wastewater, and police officers having to drive farther to service, you know, more communities and firefighters having to drive farther to fight fires, all these things is additional, additional costs. And um, one of the things I heard from a previous uh, session that I believe in, and I've kind of said is, you know, if you can't manage 
the finances, you can't manage the people, you can't support the community. So uh, I think Mark uh, Funkhouse maybe was on and talked about that. And that's something I really, I really believe in. And you have to understand, you know, where you are and where you're going. So, you know, I see it as also, we have a, a huge amount of growth trajectory, but that means that we're going to have to be even more uh, conservative with our budget going forward, because all of our capital costs are going to be going up. We've, we've coincidentally been reducing our uh, capital improvement plan, our CIP plan from a funding perspective, because we've had all these um, other issues from a you know budgetary standpoint. So it's it's always that road and street project gets delayed until next year. There's a limited amount of time that you can do that. You can't continue to do that. We need to exercise some serious fiscal discipline from the structural standpoint to get our revenues and our uh, expenditures to line up, our recurring revenues to equal essentially our recurring expenditures. And once we do that, hopefully uh, we get into that cycle, uh, we'll see continual growth and increase in revenue. And then in a perfect world, we would have a surplus. I know this probably sounds crazy to most people that are in government. And then we can programmatically use that money to say, okay, where's the growth occurring? Uh, where are the problems with public safety? And we can take that money and we can program it in a more systematic way that we can address uh, you know, some of the bigger challenges that we have in the city. Um, you know, I'm the one that's the torchbearer for this uh, kind of this theme, this uh, campaign of, you know, a structurally balanced budget. It's something I probably say, these people are so uh, poor council members. I'm like, structurally balanced budget. I heard they had a, a drinking game where they would sit back <laughs> during budget season and they would watch after, you know, they can't drink during council, but afterwards at night, they're like, okay, every time he says structurally balanced budget, you have to drink. And apparently I've gotten a lot of people very intoxicated because I continually say, you know, it's like pension reform, structurally balanced budget, OPEB trust, you know? And, and if we can fix the pensions, people said, there's no way you're going to be able to do this. That was like, uh, I use this space analogy because we're space city. The pension reform was like putting a man on Mars. Okay. <laughs> Balancing the budget structurally is like driving to New York. Like we literally can do it, but we got to get into the car and we were going to have to drive 18 hours. No one likes doing that. You know, being in a car for, you know, it's just, it's going to be very inconvenient, but from a you know, logistics stamp, I mean, it's extremely easy. We can do it at the council table. Like there's no, you know, lobbying other groups. There's no, it's just literally like, you know, putting the city on a diet financially. Speaking of aspirational goals, can we get you on the record with a prediction on TCU and the college football playoff this year? Well, that's tough. I was at the national championship game this year and, uh, I thought that they had actually switched out the Georgia players with uh, some professional football players <laughs> because we had a couple good plays. I think we score one touchdown and then they ran up. I don't know. I, I stopped looking 60 points on us. Um, you know, I think just getting into the national uh, championship was a huge win for TCU. It had been 83 years. So, you know, if we can get to a good bowl game, I'd be more than happy. I also have an MBA from U of H, so that's been an exciting one to to watch. So uh, I think the opening game for uh, TCU is TCU U of H and Big 12. So oh, I'll wow. definitely be at that game. Yeah, that's a win-win. That's how I like it. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Anything 
in the last couple of minutes here that uh, that we didn't get to that that you'd like to? Well, um, you know, one of the things and one of the challenges with the pension unfunded liability and OPEB unfunded liability is growing. We had actually dipped negative on our statement of net position, and just happy to report, uh, you know, today we were actually negative ninety five million. Uh, and that was in 2016. And today, because of the pension reform, uh, because of some of the other uh, OPEB reforms and things that we've done, and also have to you know, thank the federal government for the support through the COVID uh, with uh, ARPA and CARES and other programs, uh, we're at about $5.9 billion statement in that position. So we really, you know, again, putting my investment banker hat back on uh, looking at the city in 2016 and looking at it from an investment perspective and saying, well, geez, their liabilities are exceeding their assets. That's not a, and then to have turned that around so dramatically in a you know, period of, you know, six, seven years. Um, I think that's a, a, a testament to the fact that, you know, in Houston, we can get it done. My whole thing is just trying to make the city uh, financially sound for the long term. I've got a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. I'm a fourth generation Houstonian. I want them uh, to stay here. And I want Houston to be the town that everyone says, oh man, y'all live in Houston. Wow. It's, they're doing such great things. They've got space, they got medicine, energy, all these, you know, people are wanting to live there. You really have a great story and the city's well run. So we'll keep working to that effect. I can think of no better place to break news on positive net position than the public money pods. We Thanks yeah. for choosing us as the platform. Yeah, to bring happy, happy to do that. Happy to do that. And it's a good story. Yeah, it's a good, good narrative. Well, thanks so much to Houston controller Chris Brown for joining us here on the Public Money Pod. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thanks again to, to Chris Brown. Uh, that was a good discussion, especially about that, that pension reform. I, I do hope he gets that this helps get the word out a little bit more because I've always found that to be a unique solution to public pensions. And that sounds like it's it's working so far. Chris also talked about, we talked a little bit about the fiscal cliff, and that has been coming up a little bit more in the news lately. I've pulled an article from CBS Bay Area in California they have a story on California transit agencies going to the state to ask for additional funding because probably more than any other singular agency or even more uh, than cities and states, transit agencies still don't have anything close to what they that fiscally uh, to, to what they did before the pandemic. So they have been has received direct aid from the federal government. That, but the money's running out, and I, you know more than any other entity, I would say they they still have this really gaping hole, and and so it brings up that topic of of fiscal sustainability that that Chris was talking about and structurally balanced budget. What's going on in California, and this is similar elsewhere, is that the transit officials are asking for about five billion dollars over the next five years from the state to help them stave off drastic cuts 
according to, and that's actually less they, than they think they actually would need, according to uh, the, the transit agencies, the estimated funding shortfall for transit operators across the state total roughly six billion combined. So already there, they would be cutting a billion and receiving five billion from the state. And so California is a state that's also starting to feel that that revenue tightening a little bit sooner probably than than elsewhere. So these agency officials are going to going to the state to ask them for for billions of dollars in more money when state legislatures legislators are also dealing with their own budget deficit of about 22 billion over the next year or so. So this is this is kind of a like a snapshot of what's probably going to be happening a lot across other states, which is why I wanted to bring it up. I mean, this is already happening in terms of transit officials going to states, but what stood out to me was was that piece about the revenue. I have also been seeing more stories about state revenues tight, state revenue tightening, and so we've got a couple of years until till the pandemic money completely expires and you can't use it anymore. It's also going to be coming at a time, and it's pretty clear now that state budgets are going to be going back into revenue tightening mode, and it might feel a lot like what it was like in about 2013, 2012, when the effects of the Great Recession started impacting state and local budgets and the cuts had to just keep coming. I don't think it's gonna be that bad, but I think it might be the, the toughest kind of juggling situation in uh, for the first time in a long time that states and localities are gonna have to deal with. And as far as transit agencies, I'm not sure what the solution is in terms of a fiscally stru structurally sound budget. They have not gotten their ridership back. I think it's safe to say they're not going to catch up to where they were supposed to be. Um, and so, and that's largely due to to remote work. And and even with that, the flexibility of of workings, so people are, you know, either driving in more or or using transit during off peak hours. And when you start making cuts to transit then you kind of their research has shown that people want to write it even less because it it doesn't serve their needs as much and so that creates like a death spiral and so to me it seems like the only way out here is is for public funding it is a public service and certainly those who use transit tend to be lower income or in the service industry some places have done that uh, in terms of buses. I know DC is also looking at that with bus rides and lots of other cities. But to do it with rail is is tricky. And again, don't know don't know how you how you go about that. But <laughs> it's not going to come from rider rider ridership uh, revenues. So it has to come from somewhere else. But it's it's really tough. And um, I think what we're seeing now with this story is what's going to be the big conversation about transit for the next few years. Justin, what uh, what kind of things are you thinking about with this this issue? Yeah, no, it's everything you just said was was really well said. It's in so many other areas, you've you've been able to have a little bit of runway to try to adapt to that those structural budget concerns across state and local government. If it's in public safety, you've got some time to try to make those adjustments. What sort of police force do we need? What sort of fire departments do we need? Do we need to have uh, you know mental health professionals, behavioral health professionals engaged in in that type of service delivery? And you can you can make those changes and in, in so many other areas of core services for state and local governments, we're seeing that adaptation happening. The federal money's been really helpful in that respect to 
provide a little bit of cover to make to make some difficult changes and sort of right size and shift expectations. Chris Brown talked, you know, quite a bit about that. How so much that's so much of the story in Houston is just trying to think about what what what's the scope and size of government that we want and need and can afford. And you have that latitude in so many places. Transit agencies are in a different story that way. You're talking about legacy systems with billions of dollars of capital investments. And it's difficult not just to, to turn on a dime in terms of providing the right kinds of service, as you mentioned with, you know, buses have been able to do that to a degree. Certainly during the pandemic, uh, I, th I think there were numbers that something like the, the fall off in ridership on buses in cities across the country was not nearly as pronounced as the fall off in ridership of other kinds of transit systems, precisely because it was essential workers, often low income folks taking buses to jobs that they they needed to show up at during the pandemic. And that has continued and, and probably will continue. There's actually been some real interesting innovation happening on the bus space. Mm -hmm. But when you have a transit system that's designed to move people in and out of downtown, you can't change that. And so you really have to deal with this much more existential question of, <clears throat> is that what a transit system ought to do? And if not, what do you do instead? And how much time and effort and resources are you willing to commit to, to revamping a system all of that, of course, then happening against the backdrop of we're still not exactly sure where the jobs are going to be. Right? You, maybe you need a transit system that moves people from one suburb to the next. Maybe you need a transit system that moves people from living downtown in your former uh, financial corridor out to jobs in the suburbs, which is a completely different system than what it was designed mm -hmm. uh, to do. So huge questions, huge challenges, and transit agencies are are really having to deal with this right now and don't have the the luxury of the time that a lot of other core service areas have had. The federal money, maybe some additional federal money or other public money will help to forestall that, but it still means that you're gonna to have to grapple with these fundamental questions about what are we looking for from a transit system? What is its role in economic development? What's its role in, in urban life generally? And uh, the answer to those questions can't come any anytime too soon. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.